Uh, good morning, fellas. I don't know if you've ever planned a road trip before, or maybe you've gone to a new city, but uh, if you're like me, I like to get the lay of the land uh, before I do. And back in the day, uh, before we had the internet, you used to get out maps kind of like this, right? Y'all may remember this, some of you. Some of you have never seen one of these before. Um, but you'd go and you'd plan out exactly kind of your route that you'd go. And then we got MapQuest. Y'all remember that? The internet got big. You got MapQuest. You'd print out your map. And it had one little bitty map on it. And then it had directions step by step. And y'all still trying to figure out what's a thousand feet and the oak on the left and things like that. I just never could figure out. And so that became frustrating. And then God gave us a great gift of a smartphone, right? And so now you can just type it in and it takes you right to, tells you when to turn. Uh, all this kind of stuff. But, you know, regardless of how you choose to navigate today, maybe some of you still have that atlas. Uh, maybe you use Apple Maps or something like that. But regardless of how you do it, it really does help to know where you're going, right, uh, along the way. Uh, and if you have a plan, uh, you kind of have a smooth trip. But if you don't have a plan, what happens is uh, you're frustrated. Uh, maybe you've got some anxiety that creeps up. And if it's not you, at least your wife does. So, I don't know if y'all feel like this, though, in life. Because sometimes I feel like we go through life, and without knowing a plan and knowing what's happening, you kind of feel a little frustrated, a little anxious about what's going to happen, about where everything is headed. And, man, one of the things that God has given us is a great gift, and it's his word. It's this thing right here. And it's a book that is made up of 66 individual books written by dozens of authors over the course of 1,500 years, three different languages. You've got Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. There's approximately 783,000 words in this book. And here's the thing is that even with that kind of diversity, even with all those different authors, those different backgrounds, the magnitude of this thing, it speaks with clarity and unity and purpose throughout. It's inspired, it's authoritative, it's infallible. It's the very words of God. This is God stepping down into our world, speaking to us in our language, to us, to our hearts, giving us purpose so that we could hear from him. And it's in this great gift of God his word, that we find that it lays out for us the plan and the purpose of God. And it's kind of like a map. And the great thing is, is that, you know, like I talked about with a road trip, he's already highlighted the journey for us. It's all mapped out. We don't have to worry. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to guess. And man, I hope that this morning that we will, what we lay out will kind of be like a map for us that we can hang on to, that we can have hope in, that we can stand strong on uh, because we understand and we see the plan and the purpose of God through his revelation to us. So you've got a handout on your uh, table there. We'd love for you to fill it out as we go. We're going to go through a, a, a good bit of the story um, of the world. And so um, I will throw out some scripture as we go, um, but feel free to write and take notes as you, you seem fit. So Let's, uh, let's start. If you've got a Bible or device you read from, we're going to be at the very beginning, first stop of the journey. Happens in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And so, it says very simply, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So here's the thing is that God was already 
all right? Uh, he is the subject of the story. He created the heavens and the earth and everything in it. And what you find in the, 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 the verses to follow is that day after day, God creates just with words. He creates day after day, and he says, it is good. It is good. But on the sixth day, he did something that he didn't just say it was good. He called it very good. Look at Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26, verses 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image, and the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. God's crown of creation is very good, as it says there in uh, verse 31. God saw all that he made, and it was very good. God's heart, already evident by placing his image, creating man in his image, his heart is there that the man and the woman, that they would enjoy the gifts of his creation and that they'd be in this close relationship with him. What we find in chapter 2 and chapter 3 is that they walk with God. They commune with him. They are caught up in him. They're enjoying one another. And the man and the woman, they enjoy God's creation. They enjoy uh, God himself. And in Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, it says that Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Man, I don't know if you think about this sometimes, but that is what true bliss really is. Purity, truly heaven on earth. And that's something that our hearts long for. Why? Because what you find in the next chapter, in chapter 3, is that it was all well until that serpent entered the picture. So in chapter 3, the serpent enters the picture. He tempts and he deceives Adam and Eve uh, there, leading them to succumb to the temptation and to eat of the one single tree, one single tree, <laughs> the only thing that God said don't do. And the serpent twisted the words of God, and, and the man and the woman, they believed the serpent. And what ended up happening is that that pure, that beautiful life that they lived and that, that they, they enjoyed all came crumbling down. Their hearts were now marred by sin. Their nakedness and their lack of shame that they once enjoyed, they now felt in the deepest depths of their being. But that wasn't all. See, this, this problem of sin, it, it wasn't that it just ushered in shame that they felt, but it also broke that relationship that they had with God. And between God and the man and the woman. And so this deepest longing that they had that had been fulfilled by being there amongst the garden, amongst God, amongst this tree of life, now had been severed by their actions. And now even so, they've been banished from the garden, from God's presence. Now the story can really kind of seem bleak at this point. We're only three chapters in, right? And you're like, man. But even though God sends them from the garden, even though he guards it and says, you're never going to be able to enter this again, he does provide for them. Look at Genesis 3.21. It says, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife 
and clothed them. Already, some blood has been shed to provide for the man and the woman. And in that list of curses that God gives in in chapter 3, he speaks especially to one, uh, to the serpent that can't be overlooked. And it's Genesis 3.15, and it says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. And what this highlights is that, hey, there's going to be a stop down the road that we're going to find. Uh, something to look forward to, that sin and this adversary, they're not going to be forever. And guess what? God making this promise, he's going to make good on it. But for the moment, though, God's creation is going to have to be patient. Sin's going to continue to increase on the earth. The people and, and all of creation is going to feel those effects. And with the situation they're in, only God can do something about it. Because here's the thing is that even though the man and woman had been with God, they're marred. Uh, heart cannot and is not able uh, to, to have the heart and the spirit to faithfully live for the Lord. They can't get themselves out of this mess no matter how hard they try. And so God continues this plan by calling upon the name, a man named Abram. Uh, he lived in Ur of the Chaldees, and this is what happens. If you go to Genesis 12, this is what we find. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. Verse 2, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. Now, several things to note in this promise that God makes to Abram is that there will be a a great nation to come from this. There will be a place for them to inhabit. And and through this great nation, that's Abram's family, there's going to be a blessing that's going to come to all people, all nations. And so I don't know about you, but Abram is 75 years old whenever he sets out on this journey. That's uh, got us going, man. He doesn't argue. He just does it. He does it in faith. And what we find in Genesis 15 is, is that God makes a covenant with Abram, a gracious covenant, that he's going to make good on this promise that he's made. And so the covenant is just a stop in the journey. It's God setting the stage from which the Messiah, the one who would come and save the people. But you know what? It hasn't happened yet. And so you got to be patient. And by the end of Genesis, what we find is that the people in Abraham's family have been faithful to practice one thing at least, and that's to be fruitful and multiply. And so you know that by the time we get to the book of Exodus, the people, they're in such great number there at the end of, of Genesis that, that Pharaoh becomes concerned, right? And so he enslaves the people, and God hears their cries for deliverance. And Scripture tells us that he remembers and I love this. It says God hears their cries and he remembers. It doesn't mean that he forgot. God never forgot. It means that God has now moved to action yet again. And so God raises up a man named Moses, and he's got quite a checkered past, but this is who God has chosen. And you know the story. Moses, he goes to Pharaoh and he tells uh, him to let the people go. And 
Pharaoh says no, and there's a plague. And anyway, 10 times later and 10 plagues later, uh, the people, they finally are crossing through the Red Sea on dry ground by the miraculous hand of God. They're headed into freedom. And it's on this other side in this newfound freedom that God shares with them that they will be his people and he will be their God. This group of people, they will be his people and he will be their God. And he's reminding them of this promise that he made to their forefather, Abraham. And in that, he strikes up a whole other covenant with the people. And it's one that will remind them that they're set apart. They're holy. They're to, to live more and more into what it looks like to be a human being than what the world and sin has decided for them. They're not to look like the world, sound like the world, smell like the world. Instead, they're different because they're living into the fullness of what God created them to be. And this is called the law. It was given to Moses to give to the people. Uh, and it began to restore this relationship that, that had been severed from the fall. And it gave stipulations. It gave stipulations of how to dwell in the presence of the Lord uh, and how he would dwell with them. It, it, it told them how they were to treat one another, how they were to treat outsiders as they would come in. It showed his heart, God's heart, not just for them and their well-being, but also for the world. Because he said this, he said, you are to be a light to all the nations. But there was one drawback. It's that these practices of, of ridding their sin, the sacrificial system that God had put together, it had to be performed over and over and over and over and over again because here's the thing is they continued to sin. Uh, while they could sometimes have an outward uh, behavior that matched the law, there was something missing on the inside. And God had had this kind of a good slang term, if you like young lingo, is they had a DTR with God. God had a DTR with them, a determine the relationship, and that's essentially what this covenant is. But he wanted to take another step in, in, in restoring what had been lost. And so in this covenant, what you find is, especially in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 through 30, as you find that, that uh, God is giving blessings, blessings for keeping the covenant, hey, you, if you do this, here are the wonderful things that are going to happen. But then he goes on to say, here's the judgment that comes when you don't. When you don't. See, God, here's the thing about God is that when he speaks judgment, though, hope isn't far behind, ever. He tells them that they won't be able to faithfully keep the law. They're going to break it, and thus they're going to be driven from their land. They're going to be taken captive. But in God's goodness, he's going to allow a faithful remnant to return because God's not done with the story yet. And so by the time we get past the books of Moses and Joshua, uh, when the people, they've prepared and they've taken the land, uh, they've inhabited it, they've settled down their roots. We find in the book of Judges one of kind of the darkest times in Israel's history. And it's the cycle that seems to not ever want to stop, right? When you get to Judges, you see this cycle of sin. Uh, the people, they sin, they choose to sin, and then they find themselves in servitude to some other nation that's not God. Uh, then what happens is they cry out in supplication, and then God sends a judge, one who brings salvation to the people. 
And this happens on repeat because it doesn't take long for them to fall back into choosing their own way. And once again, the people try to think. Uh, there are times where they go, yes, yes, God, we give ourselves back to you, but they always fall short. They always started behaving and believing like the world rather than what they were called to be holy, a kingdom of priests and a light to all the nations. And so God would raise up these judges, these men and women who would bring salvation to the people in the plague of their servitude to other nations. And this is one of those moments where we get another hint, another foreshadow of what's to come. There's one who's coming who's going to take care of all this. And so one day as they're in the, in the land and they're just going along, uh, they're fed up with having to be different than the world. Uh, they told God and they told the, the, the prophet Samuel, they said, uh, we want a king like all the other nations. We find this in 1 Samuel chapter 8. He tries to warn them, Samuel tries to warn them, hey, this is not a good idea. Do you know what this means? And so he lays out for them what that means for them because this will just be a man. And he's warning them because they don't need a human king. They have God as their king. But here's the thing is they just insist. They're so insistent. And boy, do they come to regret this over the course of the following years. But even though it's a dumb move on their part, God uses it. God uses it. Uh, while they wanted a, a man as a king, God promises them that there would be an everlasting king who would come uh, for God's people. And so God makes a promise to King David in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7. And he says that there will be one who will come and sit on David's throne, that his kingdom will be established forever. It's another foreshadow, my friends. There's one who's coming. There's one who's coming. Be patient. Hang on. And as the story continues through the Old Testament, what we find is that the people, they're unfaithful to God. They're unfaithful to the covenant. But God has promised. God has promised. They can't save themselves. And what ends up happening is they begin to experience the consequences of their disobedience, their consequences of, of the judgment of the covenant. And so they find themselves taken into exile, defeated, exiled into foreign lands. And it's while in that exile that God gives another promise. The people had always known that something was missing, that their efforts weren't cutting it. And no matter how often they sacrificed at the temple, it never was truly enough. Uh, they would sacrifice and immediately go out and stub their toe and say a word they weren't supposed to, or they'd have a thought about their neighbor or whatever. I mean, it just, it never stopped. And so God gives them two promises that we find. The first is in Jeremiah 31. This is Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. 
Then he gives another promise. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, God said, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. God's made a promise because it's a heart problem. It's a heart issue that humans have. And so God is going to fashion a new covenant, one that's not externally written on some stone tablets, but instead will be written internally on our hearts of flesh. And the Spirit of God is going to help the people to live faithfully to him forever. And friends, that was something wonderful to look forward to. New life, restoration with God. But who's going to usher in this new covenant? When will this happen? And so they're going to have to be patient. And the story continues. And so after several more hundred years of patience, hundreds of years, God of God speaking and God being silent, God's preparing the soul for something earth-shattering. And the silence that, that happened for 400 years is broken by the cry of a baby. That someone, that someone that they all longed for, that they had patience for, they, 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 they rested on the promises of God, that someone of the Old Testament that it kept looking for is now here. The scriptures of the Old Testament are, are, are dripping with foretellings of this boy who had come, a perfect and spotless lamb, and what we find is that this is Jesus of Nazareth, God's own son who left heaven to come to earth to dwell among us, as John tells us in John 1. This perfect spotless lamb would also live a perfect and sinless life. He always chose to obey God perfectly, the law of God, never deviating from God's path or God's will. Perfect. He was the glory of God. And through his teaching and his life, he showed us the heart of God for all people. He healed, he taught, he loved. This was just who he was because he was God. He's Emmanuel, God with us. But he was also a servant who would suffer, as the Old Testament said. Uh, and boy, did he. As part of that system that God had instituted with Moses, only a blood offering could pay the price for sin. And the blood of animals could only temporarily pay the price, and you'd have to go back and, and offer another sacrifice when you sinned yet again. But the blood of the one and only Son of God, now that, that would be the blood that could pay that price for the judgment of our sin. Once and for all. And as Jesus shared the Passover meal with his disciples in that upper room, he broke from that script and he infused the truth of the new covenant that Isaiah talked about into that meal. As he went to the cross, it became inaugurated. You see, Jesus is our Passover lamb. He died the death that we all deserve for our sin, and this is a gift of grace from God to his crown of creation, you and I. And so Jesus paid that price. He, in, he inherited the kingdom of heaven, and he sits on the throne awaiting the day when the kingdom of God will come and eternally be established here on this earth as God has promised. But just before Jesus ascended into heaven, he promised that there, he would send a helper to us. 
And so as his disciples gathered together in Acts 2, what we find in that little room in uh, Jerusalem is that the Spirit, God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit is breathed out among them, upon them. Now, y'all, this is the fulfillment of God's Spirit dwelling in us and with us forever. God has made good on his promise, and we just have to be patient. That's the moral of the story here. The Spirit would help God's people to follow him and his ways. The Spirit, uh, just as in the days of old, the Spirit would come and go as we see. But now it's different because the Spirit comes and stays with God's people. Then what we find in the book of Acts is that God also brings about the truth that God's people aren't just this ethnic group, but that they're a people that are connected to the family tree of Jesus. And it's because we find that the, the Spirit even falls on Gentiles as well. And looking around this room, that's pretty good news for all of us, I'm pretty sure, right? God has always desired that his crown of creation, that people, human beings, those who were made in his image, would be with him in a loving and vibrant and life-giving relationship. And man, that's why he's gone to extraordinary lengths to restore what we decided to break. See, his heart and his desire, his plan, his purpose is for each of us and each of the people that are sitting next to you and that we'll encounter today. And so what we find in the New Testament is that God starts to work through the church, the body, the bride of Christ, to take the good news, this good news that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That that heart of God that we've seen from the very beginning is still playing out today for each and every single person. He's, he's relentlessly pursuing each person because he wants to have a relationship with them. He wants to restore what we broke. And so we're to take the good news to the ends of the earth. And we're going to talk more about that in the coming weeks. But one of the amazing things that unfolds in the New Testament is that instead of God's Spirit only dwelling in the temple in a fixed location in a certain land, God's Spirit goes with believers. Paul tells us that we are the temple of God. And it's God's Spirit that dwells in us. And so as we go, wherever we find ourselves, y'all, God's Spirit is now in close proximity with even those who are far away from him. We don't get to pick and choose who gets to hear the gospel. And it's our job, though, to just tell every person that we meet. Because there's not a person on this earth in whom Jesus didn't die for. And there's not a person on this earth in whom God hasn't placed his image inside of. It may not look like it, but it's there. And God desires for it to be restored. We can't choose for them. Now think about that for my own family. I can't choose for them. They have to choose for themselves. But here's the thing is that God moves toward them through us being faithful to what he's called us to do as the body of Christ. We just have to share his heart for them and to them. But here's the thing is that we're not at the end of the story yet. We're kind of in that moment of the church and of God's going out, right, to the ends of the earth. But it doesn't end here. And I'm pretty sure that we're all painfully aware that we still live in a broken and fallen world. And even though the kingdom is, is breaking through, it is headed here, we're still waiting for a day. And it's a day that the Old Testament speaks of, the New Testament speaks of it as well. When our Savior will return again, he'll slay the enemy of God and of his people. And what's going to happen is God's going to establish his kingdom forever and ever and ever. Jesus is clear, though, we don't know when that day is going to be. 
Not even he knows. It's only God. But you can put all your eggs in that basket because it's going to come to fruition. What God has promised, God will bring about. It's going to happen in the near future, and I don't know that it's going to happen today. I don't have any idea. But I'll tell you what, it's imminent. It's imminent. That day is coming, and we can hope for it. It's something to look forward to in this plan of God that he's not done, that something even greater is still yet to come. And one day, what we will enjoy is that new creation, that new creation of God's kingdom, a new heaven and a new earth eternally established with sin and death and Satan gone forever, never to be seen again. And we'll have full and unfettered access to God and that tree of life of having our longings, those aches and pains that we long for that we can't fulfill in this world will be fully satisfied in him. It'll be true bliss that none of us have ever experienced before. I mean, here's the thing is that it's coming. It's part of the plan. It's on the map because the Bible tells us so. God's going to get the final word. So as we finish up here, what does this mean for us? Well, the first is this, is that God's purpose is clear, that he desires to redeem all his creation. There's not a person on earth who wasn't created the image of God or for which Jesus didn't die for. Second thing is that God's plan is to use the church as his representatives in this broken world. Y'all, we are his ambassadors. It's our job to talk, to tell, to practice by being faithful to what he's called us to. The third thing is knowing God's purpose and plan, it gives you hope and strength because you can be anchored in and to his plan. Y'all, you're going to leave here today, and who knows what we're about to experience, right? Every day is different. But there's one we can put all of our hope in, stand firm upon, because Christ is a firm foundation. And fourth, we can surrender our lives to him because he's the one who's driving. <laughs> it ain't us. And he's navigating it. And I promise you, friends, he knows exactly what he's doing. Amen? Amen. Thank you.